The year is 1803, and Thomas Jefferson commissioned a special task force that he hoped would set the United States up for financial security and prominence as a world power for years to come. At that time, most of the Western United States was still untamed and unclaimed by Europeans. Jefferson knew that whatever nation discovered and laid laid claim to a water passage between the headwaters of the Mississippi and the Pacific Ocean would be set up financially uh, for uh, one of the best trade routes in the Western world. 300 years of map-making by trappers and explorers and European thinkers, few of whom had ever made the journey west of the Mississippi, led people to believe that the landscape on the other side of the Mississippi River was exactly the same as the eastern side of the United States. It led everyone, everyone except the Native Americans, to believe without a doubt that the route to the Pacific Ocean would involve exploration by canoe. One of the brightest young leaders and an expert in lowland canoe exploration was Meriwether Lewis and his friend William Clark. Based on what they believed to be the lay of the land, they prepared their team of explorers, the Corps of Discovery, by training them in river navigation, plains hunting techniques, and how to portage their boats and equipment over wetlands. They made preparations based on what they believed about their environment, about the landscape that was before them. Now, after 15 months of canoeing, slogging through marshland, facing grizzly bears, countless mosquitoes, and just when the mosquitoes died off, a cold and dark winter. After the death of one teammate and a month-long portage around a giant waterfall, the Corps of Discovery made it to the headwaters of the Mississippi River. This was the point that they expected to climb up on the highest peak and look west and find a mirror image of what they had just gone through. This is where they expected to meet the mighty Columbia River, get in their canoe, and just float down to the Pacific. The hard part was done. They'd prepared for this, suffered for this moment, and then, and then they saw something they both had not anticipated and had never seen before the Rocky Mountains. Of course, they had never seen them before, but I should say they'd never seen anything like them before. These men had only grown up in the eastern U.S. The Appalachian Mountains were the tallest things they had ever seen. They realized at that moment that their preparations meant nothing to them from this moment forward. The canoes they brought would need to be left behind. The clothing would need to be changed out for that that could uh, cross over mountain passes. That is, if they decided to go forward at all. We're in the season of Advent, and the season of Advent is many things, but one of the aspects I wanted to point out today is that the season of Advent is the antidote to our preconceived notions about how the world works. Advent reminds us that Christmas joy comes after Advent preparation. During Advent, we are invited to reflect on the scriptures, to prepare our hearts and our minds. We're invited to face the reality that there are a great many assumptions that our culture makes about the world that are just as inaccurate as those maps 
and the assumptions made about the Western United States. We live in a land, for example, where the prevailing opinion is that the material world is really all there is, and so the one who dies with the most toys wins. And we live in a culture that values open-ended freedom over and above loyalty and commitment. We're bombarded with messages daily, created to make us feel more insecure, more self-conscious, and more unhappy, and then those same people running those ads and those those billboards then have a product, don't they? Or an experience that they want to sell you to make you feel more secure, more happy, etc. What if the culture, what if the messages, what if the prevailing assumption about what is important, about who wins, about what life is all about, what if it's all wrong? Advent says it is all wrong. Advent then is a gracious gift to the church that says, wake up! Look, you've been preparing and living life under the wrong assumptions. Advent takes us to the pinnacle and shows us the Rocky Mountains. Advent says a king is born who is calling us to another way of life entirely. A king that is coming to judge the world based on reality, not the reality you've been fed and I've been fed through the television and through the radio and through the way of the world. There's a story in Luke that actually takes place after the birth of Jesus, and yet it's been a traditional Advent text for centuries. It's the story of John the Baptist, and I want to share it with you now. If you'll stand with me, I'll read from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3, verses 1 through 20. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Iteria, and Trachonitis, Lysanias was tetrarch of Abilene, and the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. In the year that all that was going on, the word of the Lord came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. And he came into all the district around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every ravine will be filled, every mountain and hill will be brought low, the crooked will become straight and the rough road smooth, and all flesh will see the salvation of our God. So he began saying to the crowds who were coming out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Therefore, bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children of Abraham. Indeed, the ax is already laid at the root of the trees. So, every tree that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds were questioning him, saying, What then shall we do? And he would answer and say to them, The man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and he who has food is to do likewise. Well, then some of the tax collectors also came to be baptized, and they said to him, Teacher, what should we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what you've been ordered to. 
Well, then some soldiers were questioning him, saying, well, what about us then? What should we do? And he said, do not take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely and be content with your wages. Now, while the people were in a state of expectation and all were wondering in their hearts about John as to maybe whether or not he was the Christ, John answered and said to them all, as for me, I baptize with water, but one is coming who is mightier than I and I'm not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached the gospel to the people. But when Herod the Tetrarch was reprimanded by him because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and because of the wicked things which Herod had done, Herod added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. Lord, thank you for your servant John, whose very passion and wildness and single-mindedness and purity of heart challenges us, challenges our sensitivities. We'd be more prone to lock him up in a mental institution than to listen to him. Probably because he pushes our buttons so hard. Holy Spirit, by your grace and power, would you help us to lower our guard this evening to hear what your servant John has to say to us? Thank you, and help us to believe that this is good news. Amen. You may be seated. Luke begins his story, like any good historian or biographer, by setting the scene. He lists a bunch of names of those who are in power, names like Tiberius Caesar and Pontius Pilate and Herod and all these tetrarchs, all the way down to the Jewish high priests. Luke lists these names, not so much to set it in history. I mean, that much was obvious to Luke's first hearers. They all knew these names. They knew that this happened in history. Luke mentions these names for a more theological reason. He mentions these names because each of these names represents an oppressive regime, particularly the Roman occupancy and Roman violence against Israel. Tiberius was a notoriously ruthless ruler, and he once had all the Jews deported from from Rome. I mean, can you imagine? Like, all of them had to be deported from Rome. That's crazy. One historian said of Pontius Pilate that he was cruel, ruthless, prone to bribery, and frequent executions without trial. The Herodian tetrarchs were puppet leaders for Rome. Herod built his capital city on top of a graveyard, which, of course, is an outrage to Jewish people. That's unclean things mixing together. And then to add insult to injury, Herod named his capital city, which was in Israel, Tiberius, the name of the emperor. Of course, later on, Herod would have a role to play in the crucifixion of Jesus. Not a good guy. Finally, we get to the Jewish high priests, which one might assume opposed Roman rule. But in reality, during the first century A.D. and, and uh, the last centuries B.C., uh, the position of high priest under Roman rule was an appointed position. And the Romans would appoint these high priests and say, listen, you keep people's religion personal and private. As long as it doesn't mess with us, you keep them happy. You keep them going to, to the temple and the synagogue, but don't let them try and live it out. Okay? And so the, the, the official priesthood uh, wanted to just keep the peace because they could keep their position of power if they were able to do that. 
From the emperor to the local priesthood, corruption and oppression was hanging over the heads of the people of Israel. God had not spoken to them directly for nearly 400 years, and then, at the end of the list of these oppressive names, we hear these words. The word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. It's no small statement. If you look at most of the minor prophets and how those books begin, they usually begin with, the word of the Lord came to... Fill in the blank. This is how a prophet is introduced. And a prophet hadn't been introduced in Scripture or in in the history of Israel for nearly 400 years. And these prophets are usually introduced in Israel's history at a time when they are either sinning really badly and or really oppressed. What Luke is saying is that finally, after all these years, God is raising up a prophet. The voice of God is speaking directly to his people, a spokesman for God is about to speak. Let me pause here and make an observation. It's in verse 3, if you have your Bibles handy. Writing about John the Baptist, Luke writes, And he came into all the district around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. God's salvation is coming to rescue the people from captivity. And John is preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Think back to what I said earlier about Lewis and Clark. About what I was saying about preparing based on false assumptions. If you were a first century Jewish person... You might be thinking that if and when God raised up another prophet, and if and when he was going to fulfill his prophecy of salvation, well, you'd probably be thinking, this is awesome because Rome is going to get nailed. Rome's going to get judged. All the corrupt leaders of Israel are going to get judged, but I'm just a common Jewish guy. I'm going to be fine. This is awesome. This is what I've been waiting for. This is what I've been preparing for. Based on those assumptions, you might consider yourself as a son or daughter of Abraham. The last thing you would be thinking is that you, of all people, might have to actually repent and be baptized. After all, Jewish people in the first century didn't get baptized. That was for non-Jewish people who were looking to become Jewish, to convert to the Jewish faith. It was for Gentiles and barbarians, people who wanted to come from the outside into the family of God. Jewish people, everyone knew, were born into the family of God. But something had happened that gripped the hearts of these Jewish crowds. They got caught up in the movement, and crowds of people were going out to the wilderness to hear John preach. Crowds of Jewish people were going out to hear John and be baptized amazing. It's like some kind of revival thing you hear about uh, in the 1700s or the early 1800s, and what jo- or a Billy Graham crusade even. And, and what John says next from a worldly perspective, even from a ministry perspective, sounds nuts to me. He's been preaching. He's been calling people to change, to be baptized for the repentance of sins. It's like an altar call, right? And, and you've got all these people coming like, yes, I want to get baptized. And he says, you Snakes, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? I mean, 
being called a snake is pretty offensive in any time and culture, but being called a brood of vipers in that day was a little more offensive. Uh, some people believe that uh, vipers, if they hatched inside the mother, would actually eat their way through the mother's side, uh, killing the mom snake rather than being, waiting to be born. It, it was a way of saying, you're a mother killer, which if you know anything about kind of like uh, ancient Near or Middle, we all love our moms, right? But people are really passionate about Jewish moms, right? So uh, to, to call someone a mother killer, that's a bad thing, right? And so you imagine, you know, I, I do an altar call or something, and you guys are coming up like, I just feel the Lord calling me, you mother killer. I mean, could you imagine, like, how offensive that would be? Is that John's evangelism strategy? Man, didn't this guy go to, like, the church growth seminar on seeker-sensitive church services? He sure doesn't seem to be very open-minded. But dig a little deeper into what John is doing here. And we see that he's actually full of love and mercy. It may have been brash and offensive, it definitely was, but it was also real. It was like the view of the Rocky Mountains for Lewis and Clark. It was a wake-up call that they needed to prepare differently than the way they had been living. But that's a hard word to accept. Like, nobody wants to be the bad guy, right? No one wants to think that they're the one that needs to repent. What we like to do is to compare ourselves to other people and say, yeah, I've made mistakes, but I'm not fill in the blank, right? Um, Consider some popular stories. Consider The Hobbit, right? A lot of of you know The Hobbit. Um, Just call out, who are some favorite characters from The Hobbit? All of them. Okay, oh, yes. Yes. Tom Bombadil. That's Lord of the Rings, but yes. Smaug. Okay. Yeah, I mean, he's, especially if you've got a um, Benedict Cumberbatch thing. Again, Lord of the Rings, but okay. <laughs> Hobbit. Yeah. 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 It's all right. It's all right. Nerd pastor. Yeah, because he's like, yeah. All right. Yeah, Chronicles of Narnia. Do we have some favorite characters from Chronicles of Narnia? Anyone know those stories? Oh, Aslan, he's amazing, right? I love Lucy. Lucy's great. Or how about uh, Harry Potter? I mean, do we have some favorite characters from Harry Potter? Hermione, of course. Yes. Ron. Fred and George are amazing, right? Okay, okay. But when we're calling out names of the Hobbit, besides Greg, who loves everyone and all these things, um, no one says, you know what, I really look up to the necromancer. Like, that's my guy. Or, or in the Chronicles of Narnia, no one wants to be Edmund, at least in the beginning of the story. Like, what a stink pot. And no one wants to be used to scrub. I mean, even after the dragon scene, like, what a punk. And in Harry Potter, does anyone really say, like, Lucius Malfoy's my guy. Like, what an upstanding citizen. I just want to, you know... Now, granted, in Star Wars, we have a problem with my theory because everyone loves Darth Vader, but no one wants to be Jar Jar Binks, right? Okay, thank you. So the Israelites have been crushed and oppressed by Rome, and no doubt about it, they would have, uh, it would have been a big mistake for them to, to think that they didn't have any sin to repent of before God. What John is saying is don't come to me telling me that you're the good guy, that you've got Abraham as your descendant. God can turn the very rocks that are on the ground into children of Abraham. And let me just explain something before we move on. John is not saying that your Jewish heritage doesn't matter to these people. 
And he isn't saying that the covenant God made with Abraham and his descendants is in any way meaningless. What he is saying is that God's covenant with Abraham should make a difference in how his descendants behave. A covenant is kind of a two-way street. John says that getting ready for God's arrival takes more than just an empty religious act. It takes repentance. And repentance is more than just saying, oh, I'm sorry, or going through the motions of religious rites like baptism. True repentance bears fruit. And the crowds had a serious problem. They were not bearing fruit from being in a covenant relationship with God. Just kind of want to break the scene right there. It's a great story, and I think it's also a great reminder for us in the present time. Because one of the major themes in Luke is that the good news of Jesus is for all people, regardless of race or gender or class or culture or religious status or sinfulness. Luke wants us to see that we all have to enter the kingdom of God in this, through the same door, and that's through humility. There's absolutely no other way to enter into the kingdom of God. And similar to the crowds in this story, we may have been born in, 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 in the church and been relying on our heritage for salvation, We need to stop for a minute and think about this narrative alongside our own situation. Some of us are insiders. You're definitely inside a church building right now, even if this is your first time. We're, We're in a church participating in a Christian worship service. And some of you have deep roots in in the faith. Could it be that you or me or us have grown a little bit too relaxed, too complacent, Have we so emphasized God's love and grace that we've kind of forgotten about the reality of his holiness and his judgment? We have to ask the question, am I living out my calling as a Christian person? Are we living our lives to bless others as God calls us to bless other people? Luke's message is basically that no amount of preaching sermons or singing on the worship team or giving tithes and offerings or working with the children or praying prayers, no no, no amount of religious activity can buy our forgiveness or our entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Only faith in Jesus and true repentance can do that. Well, the crowds hear this, and they say, what then shall we do? It's a great response. Just that response shows that the crowds are considering the reality that maybe they were wrong about the lay of the land. That perhaps the way they had been seeing the landscape of history wasn't quite accurate. The question is one of humility and longing, and the question reveals an awakening of the heart. What if John is God's prophet? And what if he is pointing us toward the Savior? Well, then how do we prepare for that new reality? And John gives us three examples. First, the one uh, with abundance should be generous with the one who does not have as much. The kingdom of God functions as, uh, on an economy of gift. It's not socialism, it's not communism, it's not capitalism. The kingdom of, of God is described the way God does things in Scripture is an economy, is an economy of gift. I'm prone to, to saying, when, like when, when the waitress comes over or somebody, the barista, how are you doing today? I'm prone to thinking and saying, better than I deserve. 
We live in an economy of gift. Most of us, most of the time, have it better than we deserve. Have you guys seen this? Uh, I forget who puts it on, but it's something going around YouTube where uh, the guy wakes up and he's got like a present on his, like a wrapping paper on his face, and he rips it off and he says, I'm alive! You know, it's this like, and, and the light switch has wrapping paper, he tears it off, and he's like, look, the lights turn on and off whenever I want them. It's just like, we start to think about the regular things we take for granted, like how amazing life is. Now, granted, I, I know life isn't amazing for everyone right now, so, but in general, there's a lot of things that we could be thankful for that we just take for granted. And, and this is showing kind of this, the first example here of John is that the one who has an abundance should share with the one who is in need. We're called to, to receive from God and to give away, and to give away and to receive from each other. This is how we practice, how we prepare to be citizens of the kingdom of God. You ever think about that? Like when the kingdom comes, uh, it, I, I don't think there's anything in scripture that, that suggests that a light switch is going to turn on our head and all of a sudden we'll just be like, well, you know, I was kind of a jerk, um, but I prayed the prayer one day and then when Jesus comes back, I'm just going to be a nice guy all of a sudden. Like there's really not a lot to suggest that theory. So that's why Jesus maybe calls us to act like him now. Um, Dallas Willard is always fond, he was fond of saying it's like acclimatizing uh, to a new, a new atmosphere. I, I like that picture because this is all preparation, it's all practice. So if it's really an economy of gifts, like having a loose hand with your stuff and being humble enough to receive help from other people, it's a really good way to be. We'll be, have a leg up on everyone else, we'll be more, uh, uh, we'll have our base tan when we get to the sunny kingdom of God or whatever it is, yeah. The next two examples come from specific groups of people, people who worked in professions who in that day were kind of frowned upon. Uh, tax collectors and soldiers. I find it at first fascinating and then liberating that John does not demand that the soldier hang up his sword or the tax collector to leave his job. Instead, he tells these men to do their work with honesty and integrity and deference. John says, for a tax collector, repentance look like, uh, looks like changing the way you see people. Stop seeing people as a means to more wealth and to more personal pleasure at their expense, and start seeing people as fellow brothers and sisters, as fellow image bearers of God. Well, that seems like it translates to pretty much any job in the world, doesn't it? Next up, some soldiers were questioning him, saying, and what about us? What do we do? And he said to them, do not take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely and be content with your wages. See, soldiers back then oftentimes would receive free room and board, but they were very modestly paid, like soldiers today. It was not uncommon for soldiers to abuse their power and to influence and coerce people into giving them money or favors. That was just the landscape of their world. That's kind of like one of the perks of being a soldier in the first century. You knew that there would be kind of some side benefits that you could, you know, if you found some poor person who maybe had a few cents to their name, you could say, no one even knows who you are. I could have you locked up for life or you can give me that thing that you have. And you could just, that's what, how they got their uh, tips, if you will. And what John is saying, like, stop doing that. Be content with your wages. You have a place to live. You have food. You have a modest income. 
Stop abusing people. Start seeing them as brothers and sisters and image bearers of God. What we see then is the preparation of the heart, repentance. And it always leads to acts of compassion and mercy and justice. You'll notice that, especially in Luke, and we're going to be in Luke a while together as a church into the new year too, there is no private personal belief without public action. Right? There's repentance, and there's fruit of the repentance, and the two aren't divorced. There's not like, well, you're a baby Christian when you just are sorry in your heart, and you say, thank you, Jesus, for salvation, and then someday, I'll actually live differently. It's like you become alive, you become a new person, and you also then begin to make changes in your life. That's exactly what John is saying. So we come now to a crossroads. Because, newsflash, you cannot do what John is telling us to do in this passage on your own, in your own strength. You can do it for a time, but it won't be fulfilling, and you won't be able to do it long term. You cannot save yourself. That's not John's message anyway. John's preaching, he would even say, wouldn't save anyone. Because John's preaching, all of it, points to someone else besides himself. Listen to this. Now while the people were in a state of expectation and all were wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he was the Christ, John answered and said to them all, As for me, I baptize you with water. But one is coming who is mightier than I. And I'm not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is at his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached the gospel to them. What did he preach to them? The gospel, the gospel, the, the good news, the euangelion, that word gospel means good news all of the stuff about unquenchable fire and chaff being burned it's all in the context of good news how is that good news because it's reality and john is saying hey i know you guys are excited you sense the movement of god i'm not him i'm not the messiah let me point you to the one whose sandal i'm not even worthy to untie this is the guy who will not only baptize you like I am, like a wake-up call baptism, but he will baptize you with the Spirit and with fire. And the Spirit, people, the Spirit will be able to change your heart and to make you able to be a new creation. John's call to repent inevitably leads to failure. It, It leads to humility and the realization that we are broken that I am broken, that we're selfish, that I am selfish, and that's right where we need to be to hear and receive the good news. John isn't giving people more barriers into entering the kingdom of heaven. He's saying Jesus will only, he's not saying Jesus will only come if you act the right way. John is preparing the way because whether people know it or not, whether they like it or not, whether they believe it or not, and whether or not they respond, the reality is that John is saying is that Jesus is on the move, and with him the kingdom of heaven is breaking in. 
hear that, hear what, hear what John is saying. As intolerant as it sounds, it doesn't matter if you believe it. It doesn't matter if you like it. It doesn't matter if you respond to it. The reality is, is that it is happening. That's what he says. Maybe only a guy from the wilderness dressed in camel hair who eats bugs can talk like that because he really doesn't have any friends anyway to lose. It's kind of funny, but it's kind of true, isn't it? It's hard to say the hard things. It's hard to say the real things. That's what John is saying. He's saying, this is reality, folks. And the good news is good news because there is a way for us to be rescued from judgment and made new. Made into the kinds of people who live more and more like Jesus and in a way that trusts Jesus. The good news, of course, on this side of history is that Jesus has come and that he's become flesh and he's dwelt among us and, and the king became a servant even unto death. After three days, he rose from the grave and defeated death itself. He received the kingdom from his father. He ascended and sits at the right hand of God. And now we prepare by uh, awaiting his return. The question I come away with then on this side of that part of history is I hear what John is saying to those crowds and I hear it in the terms of, am I ready? Am I prepared? Have I taken stock lately? This is the great invitation of Advent. Hear hear this as an invitation just to look at our lives and to say, where have I gotten too too lazy, added too much stuff to my life? It's too complicated. You hear the simplicity of the word is humility, repentance, and trust. That's the gospel. Jesus. Would you pray with me? Lord, we admit we've just heard a message from a man who called people a brood of vipers when they were coming out for baptism. It's a hard word. It's a a rocky mountains in our face kind of word. But Lord, I pray that when we leave this place and we are so tempted to go back to our comforts, uh, to entertain ourselves and... um, do other things that will distract us from reality. Lord, would you kindly not leave us alone? Would you tenaciously pursue us like the hound of heaven, convicting us where that's needed, showing us the things that we've become attached to that are really in the way of fullness of life? I thank you that you are a God who is for us, that you are a God who is about life, that you are a God who wants your people to experience fullness of life. It's not like you're the bad guy. You want to make us more alive than we are currently. Lord, we place before you our fears, the very real loss that that means for some of us, Lord, some of the the things that we've become accustomed to, our crutches in life that we need to lay aside at this moment to prepare for your coming. By your grace, would you help us to receive uh, this good word? By your grace, would you give us the power and the courage and the will to be more fully your people? 
Bless you, Lord, for doing all, all that is necessary and more for us to have new life. Help us to receive it. Amen.